Good morning, everybody. I, uh, I don't know about you, but the uh, filming of the announcements is starting to look like a dangerous sport. So, <laughs> hey, um, I want to talk about billionaires for a few minutes this morning, if we can. Um, not because I am one, although that would be kind of fun. But wouldn't it be fun to be a billionaire? I mean, not all the like publicity and the garbage that goes with that, but just the money side of it. I think that would be just, just a bit of all right. You know, you'd never have to worry when you go to the grocery store about, you know, oh man, is the meat more expensive? Or man, look how much the jug of milk's gone up. Like none of these questions would even cross your mind. Um, if your spouse went off to the mall, there wouldn't be the inevitable like, well, what did you buy? And what did you put it on? And how did you, you know, like that wouldn't happen because if you were a billionaire and your spouse went to the mall, even if they bought the whole mall, it wouldn't be a big deal. They'd just come back and be like, what'd you do? You bought, you bought a mall. Well, I hope you put it on Visa so we can get the airpoints. You know, like that's what it's like to be a billionaire. The, the world that we know it is not set up for billionaires because it's set up for people like me and you, right? It's, 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 it's to take our money, but for them, it's like, what is that, like a penny for those guys when they go and buy stuff? Anyway, it's crazy to be a billionaire. I was reading several months ago that this, um, uh, these Russian oligarch, their, their yachts that were being confiscated at the beginning of the Ukrainian war, some of these yachts, they were like not sure what to do with them because it costs $20 million a year to keep these things up and running. And I'm like, $20 million a year just to operate a boat? That's crazy. Like, how often do these guys go on this boat? If you're going, you know, two weeks a year, is it really worth owning the yacht if it costs you $20 million a year? But that's the kind of money these people have, and it blows our minds. But not everybody has what it takes to become a billionaire. I think there are some obvious factors that it takes to be a billionaire. Like you have to be, you know, hardworking and determined and probably have like an entrepreneurial sense and some creativity and all sorts of things. Things that we would probably find in this room. But I think there's some things that we might be harder pressed to find in this room that it takes to become a billionaire. For starters, I think if you want to be that rich you have to be willing to step on a few throats along the way, you know, because the arena of making money is a cutthroat industry. It's a cutthroat place. There's lots of new ideas and innovations and lots of people vying for that, that piece of the pie. And so if you want to be a billionaire, I think you've got to be willing to take out the competition because competition is just another name for sharing profits. And if there's one thing we know about billionaires, they don't like to share and you want to know how I know that? Because they're billionaires. If they, weren't, if they were good at sharing, they probably wouldn't be billionaires at all. We'd call them millionaires or something like that. So anyway, I don't think that, you know, I, I think if you want to be a billionaire, you've got to be willing to crush a few throats along the way. And I don't think anybody or maybe very few people in this room would have the stomach to be able to do that. You know, some of us are just too nice to be billionaires. At least that's what I tell myself. It also never hurts to start with some money. They say that the first $100,000 that you put in your bank is like the hardest $100,000 to make. To go from 100 to 200 is less work than it takes to get from zero to 100. Just like if you had $10 million, it wouldn't be that hard to go to 11 million. But for most of us in this room, to go from zero to 1 million would be an incredible thing and most of us wouldn't be able to do it. On Monday, July 20th, 2020, Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in one day. Isn't that crazy? $13 billion in one day. Now, I'm sure he worked hard that day, 
But did he work hard enough to earn $13 billion? That's the same as me and, and all of you and then all of the first service and then 43 million other people getting together and pooling our money in one day to make that kind of cash. Isn't that ridiculous? That is a huge amount of money, but that's what Jeff made in one day. The other thing that I think it takes to be a billionaire, which I don't think most billionaires would be willing to admit, is an act of God. I don't think that you can get that rich without God having a hand in it. And if you've met somebody who's wealthy and they are a humble person and they are a believer, they will tell you that at some point their skill and, and their knowledge ended and it, there was just something to it. God made it happen. And I wanted to share with you a little bit this morning about what it takes to become a billionaire because this morning we're also going to be looking at the Israelites and what it took the Israelites to become God's treasured possession. And I think as we look at this, we will see that not everybody has what it takes to be considered a child of God or to be God's treasured possession. In fact, perhaps nobody has what it takes to be that. You see, initially when Adam and Eve first walked the planet, they had a relationship with God. And it was this awesome, you know, personal relationship with God. And he said to them, hey, look, we can keep this relationship thing going and with all humanity. I'm just going to ask you to, to just not do one thing, okay? Just, there's a tree over there in the garden. Just don't eat from that. And this can all stay the way it is. So what did they do? They went and ate from the tree, right? Like that's what we do as humans. And they destroyed that relationship between humanity and God. It was severed and, 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 and that was it. But at God's initiative, we see him working behind the scenes to recreate and restore that relationship with humanity that was ruined. And in Genesis, we get a picture of that as he picks out a family who he's going to now reveal himself to. There has been lots of history that's taken place between Adam and Abraham. And God has very selectly revealed himself to people. But in general, the world would not have known much about the Lord at that point. And so we see in Genesis that God reveals himself to this one family. And then in Exodus, we see that God has now expanded that. This family is now bigger. He has made them into a nation. And now God is vastly expanding his sphere of revelation or the revelation of himself to these people. One thing we'll note is that up to this point, this process of reconciliation between God and humanity has been completely at the work of God. Humanity has done nothing. It has been God who is working to make this happen. But that is about to change here as the Israelites are entering into a covenant with God in chapter 19 and 20, which we're going to be looking at today of Exodus. And they are about to see exactly what it takes to be in a relationship with a holy God and be his treasured possessions or possession. There are some sobering realities here for anybody who wants to be in a relationship with a holy God. It's just not, as, not quite as trivial as we treat it as Christians as we walk around every day and we kind of just really, oh yeah, like I've got the spirit of God within me and we kind of go about our daily life. Do we understand what we're saying when we say we have the spirit of God within us? Do we understand what we have been offered in that? God is this awe-inspiring God, so much so that I think if we fully understood who God was and what he was all about and we could take his greatness and his amazingness in, it would mess up our lives. 
We wouldn't be able to handle it because our lives aren't set up for that kind of love for God. There's too much selfishness in there. It would literally change everything we did because all we would want to do is we would want to worship God and we would want to be in on exactly what he was doing. It would mess up everything in our lives. One thing that I know about God is that the more that I get to know him, and I'm sure you have had a similar experience, The more that I get to know him, the more that I worship him, the more that I understand him, the more that I read about him, the more amazed and in awe I am of him. And it's crazy how that works. The more we get to know him, the better he gets. And yet we don't do that. We don't don't throw ourselves at God and into, into learning about him and knowing about him. And why is that? If he is more amazing, the more we get to know him, why is that we don't spend that time getting to know him? God is awe-inspiring. So today we're going to look at what it takes for the Israelites to become God's treasured possession. And hopefully that will open up our eyes to see what we have as children of God. Okay, so let's pick it up today in Exodus 19, verse 1. At this point in the story, Israel has been traveling through the desert and they are just about to get to the base of Mount Sinai. On the first day, of the first, uh, pardon me, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they, uh, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert at Sinai and Israel encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Do you think they were in the desert? Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's something interesting that we see going on here in verse four. And when God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What's interesting here is Israel has basically been a spectator up to this point. God is the one who has selected them. He is the one who has brought them out of Egypt. He has crossed the Red Sea by making that happen. Israel is just kind of along for the ride at this point. It has been God at work behind the scenes. And as we look back at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and eventually Jesus, we see that it is actually God in all of that who is at work trying to restore himself or us to himself. Our part is so minor at every step of the way. And it is God who is the one who is making the initiative in all of this. And this is something that I think we need to understand as believers. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to to say like, oh yeah, like I became a Christian and I did this. And somehow we put just a little bit too much on what we do. When the truth is, We have very little to do in that process. It is God revealing himself to us. And he has chose to reveal himself to you. And I hope that makes you feel special because that is an amazing thing that the God of the universe at this time would choose to do that with you personally. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse five. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how uh, the Israelites were to participate in this ritual called the consecration of the firstborn. And in that, they were to, they were to take their firstborn son and, and they were to consecrate him 
unto the Lord. And, and the reason they did that was because the firstborn son in those families was sort of this prized possession. It was this treasured possession because the family name would be passed down through that son. The majority of the family's wealth would be passed down through that child and the assets and all that kind of stuff. So God is saying here, if you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my firstborn sons and daughters. Essentially, if you keep my covenant, you will become my children, the children of God. But this is going to be a two-way street. This isn't going to just be God doing something at this point. This is now going to be a two-way street, and they are going to have to hold up their end of their bargain if God is going to be holding up his end of the bargain to make them the treasured possession. Something, interestingly enough, that to this very day, the Jewish people are still struggling to fulfill. Let's keep reading. Verse seven, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord has, had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. In faith, they, they decide before they even hear the terms of the covenant. They say, yeah, we wanna be in on this, God. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. This verse tells us that God was gonna come to the people. They were gonna hear what he had to say. It wasn't just gonna be Moses. They were actually gonna hear God at that point. But he's also doing something interesting here, right? From the very beginning of Exodus, God has been making Moses into a leader. But he's doing something different now. It's, it's, it's a strange way to write it here in, in verse nine where he says, um, they are gonna hear me speaking with you and then they're gonna always put their trust in you. Why would God say that? Shouldn't they put their trust in God? Isn't that kind of how we talk if we're doing it right? Well, God wanted them to understand that they were gonna need a mediator to come between him and them. And he does this. And we're gonna see more of this as we continue to read in the story. They are gonna want a mediator to come between them and a holy God. Their sin is too much for them to bear in their presence. And so God is setting Moses up here, not just as a leader anymore. He wants them to see him as a mediator, but he's gonna be an imperfect mediator. This is a picture that God is putting in place of a future mediator, a mediator that will come and will stand for all time between us and God, and that will be Jesus. Listen to what we have here in Hebrews 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It is Christ who fulfilled it. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Let's keep reading in Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted, permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. 
God is so holy that even if we enter into his presence uh, in an improper way, we are to be killed. And, and, and that's in this point, he is telling the Israelites, hey, you've got to take care of this. But we'll see later on in Exodus that actually it's God who reaches out and he, he takes care of that problem if somebody comes into his presence. And so, so we see here going on that, that you have to be, oh, pardon me, uh, we don't want to, uh, if that situation happens and they enter into God's, God's holy presence in an improper way, they are to be killed in, in such a way that we don't even touch them. God's saying, hey, if they do this, they're so bad, don't even touch them. Shoot them with arrows, throw stones at them, kill them. These people are learning here what it, you know, what, what, who God is. You got to remember that at the beginning of time between Adam and Eve and Abraham and all that kind of stuff, there hasn't really been a lot of God talk going on. It's not like there's a bunch of Christians running around saying, hey, come to church with me. God was absent from humanity in a general respect. And so the Israelites don't know a lot about him here and they're, they're learning about him. But we can see God teaching them and us several things as they prepare for this encounter with God and as Moses brings this back down. First, we see that God is to be taken seriously. Anybody who wants to be in a relationship with God and approach him is to approach him with reverence. In these passages, like we said, anybody who approaches God in an unworthy manner is to be put to death. The second thing that we see is purity is required to have a relationship and to be in the presence of God. Now, obviously, he's talking about washing clothes here. We know that washing our clothes does not make us clean enough to be in God's presence. But the idea of having to be cleaned and prepare ourselves and be pure before our holy God, you know, sets the picture for what's going to need to happen in the future. God's going to have to send Jesus to purify us so that we can eventually be in the presence of a holy God. So when we, we, we want to be in a relationship with God, there is purity that's involved. We understand now on this side of things, hey, we, we can't even do that on our own. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Can you imagine what the scene would have been like? This picture here is a picture of a mountain just outside of Banff, and many of you have probably seen it in this room. As you're driving down Highway 1 and you're just about to come off the overpass and head into Banff, this mountain is right in front of you, and there's a waterfall by it, and you can walk up to the waterfall. It's not far off the road. Can you imagine standing at the base of this mountain and looking up at how immense and huge it is? Now, on top of that, add smoke covering the entire mountain. But not just smoke gently rising into the air like maybe you would see even you know, from a distance in a forest fire. Smoke billowing off of this entire mountain up into the sky just ferociously going up as like coming out of a, a, a burning furnace. And to that picture with the smoke and you're standing right here and this is all going on, to that add an earthquake. 
And to the earthquake, add a supernatural sound, something that was so loud that you've never heard anything like that in your life. Remember that the Israelites didn't live in a time where there was speakers and and, and sound equipment and things like that. So this would have likely been the loudest noise they had ever heard in their life. And they're standing right at the bottom of this and they're looking up. What kind of a feeling would that invoke in you? Fear. And if it was me, I would be saying, we've got to go stand like 20 miles away from this so that we can actually look at it without freaking out. But this was the experience that God wanted them to have. This nearness was meant to be a larger-than-life encounter. Isn't that what it's like to be in the presence of God? If you've ever had an encounter with God like this, we're like, wow, I can't even take it all in what is happening around me. One day we're going to have that encounter with God. We're going to be able to take the whole thing. But if we, if we had God here with us right now, it would be too much to handle. Because the presence of God or being in the presence of God as a human is a larger than life experience. And as humans covered in sin, it is a fearful and it is a terrifying experience to be in the presence of God. And that is the message God was communicating to them that day. But as those who have received mercy, it's also an experience that can create in us wonder and awe. For the Israelites, this moment would have been a lasting memory, something that they would have handed down to their children and their children's children. This event, as they talked about what it was like to encounter and meet with God, it would have sounded like, like, oh man, I remember the time that my great-grandfather told me this story about how they saw God and they heard him and they were, there was fire and there was smoke. And the, I remember him saying like the, the noise was so loud, his ears were ringing for three days and, and, and the smell of the smoke was like this. And like, it would have been an incredible story that they would have handed down. And that's how people would have heard about God and known about him the day that God gave them the covenant. Let's skip over now to God giving them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When I was building houses, I would set up or we would have a contract with the people we were building houses for. And that was to kind of say, well, okay, Joel, you're going to build this house and it's going to include the labor and the material and this is what it's going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And the other side of that was we're going to provide you with a truckload of money. And, and the lawyers had different words for that, but like I would have been fine with those, those words. But that's essentially what it was. Hey, you're going to do this and we're going to provide you with that. And at the top of that document was sort of my name and it had my company's name and, and it would also reference me as the builder. And below that it had their names and they were the client and the homeowner. And through that document, it would refer to those people in that way. And so this is what's going on here. In verse two, it's essentially stating in ancient terms, hey, I am your God. This is how people are going to refer to you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and people are going to know that. And you're going to refer to me as your God as well. And so that's what he's saying here. I am the God of this covenant. He's also mentioning them here. This is the people who have brought out of Egypt. The Egyptians? No, not the Egyptians. It is the ones who are enslaved. So he's setting out the terms of who is going to be involved in this covenant and what it's going to mean going on. Notice, though, what the covenant language in verse 2 there doesn't include. It doesn't include anyone else. It's between the Israelites and and, and God, which means that no one else who wasn't an Israelite, gets to be a part of this treasure or becoming this treasured possession. 
And no one else is subject to any of the other terms of the agreement as well because they weren't going to be invited into this deal. That includes us in the future as well. And that might shock some of you. You are not a part of the first covenant that God made with the Israelites. You are not under that law. You are not under that rule. You are a part of a new covenant as a believer. And you have received the promised inheritance and become God's treasured possessions already in a different way, through a different agreement. One that was based on works. And you're like, what? Wait, hold on. I, don't, I didn't think it was a covenant of works. What do I got to do? Somebody should have told me. The covenant you are a part of is a covenant of works, just like the first covenant. But it wasn't based on your works and it wasn't based on mine. It was based on Jesus's work. How amazing is that? This is why the gospel message is so awesome. And the new covenant should inspire awe in us because our obligation, our side of the covenant has already been fulfilled. It's like if I built somebody a house for somebody, you know, for you guys, and then all of a sudden it was like, well, somebody else paid for it and you get to keep the house. That's kind of a good deal. And I'm like, I don't care. I got paid. That's what's going on here for us. That's amazing. But that can leave us with one question, though. If the covenant has already been fulfilled, and it's not a covenant based on our works anymore because Jesus has already taken care of that, does that mean we get to run around and sin as much as we want? Because that's kind of what it looks like at face value. But when we accept Christ and we choose to accept him, there's two lives in front of us. We have a sinful nature and we have a free will, but that free will is completely marred by our sinful nature. Now, every decision that we make is, is, is completely uh, covered by that sinful nature. And so we make decisions based on what that sinful nature is trying us, to make us do. It's trying to pull us away from God. But in our free will, we get to make the decision to follow that sinful nature. On the other side, we have God saying, if you want to die to that, and follow me, I will teach you how to live. You don't have to follow the rules of the commandments and all that kind of stuff. All of that's in what I'm gonna teach you, but you're gonna follow me and you're gonna be obedient to me and you're gonna say goodbye to that old life. So when you make the decision and you choose Christ, you are choosing to die to that old self and to accept Christ's new life, which he is gonna teach you as you submit to him. Does that mean we never sin as Christians, as believers? Of course we sin. This side of heaven, we still have that sinful nature. We're stuck with that. But we call out to God and we're like, God, save us from this. Clean this area of my life up. Are we chasing after the sinful life anymore? No. We hate that part of ourselves. We want God to get rid of it, take it out of our lives. And we struggle with it day after day. Name the sin in your life right now that you struggle with. Do you love it and cherish it? Do you want that to be the life that you chase after? If you're a believer, you don't. You want that gone and you call out to the Lord, God, save me from this. And sometimes he does. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it takes 20 years. And sometimes we're never free of that sin this side of heaven. A close relative of mine became a believer many, many years ago, and they were essentially an alcoholic before they became a believer. And the day that they became a believer, they took all that booze in the house and they dumped it out and they never turned back. They never had another drink after that. They were done. Alcoholism was gone. Just an amazing turn of events for them. It changed their life. 
But we also know people, Michelle and I, who have had sin in their life that they've struggled with their whole life, addictions and different things, and they've never been able to free themselves. We've seen, we've seen God free people from them, but we've also seen God not free people from their sins. And they went to their grave still in that sin. Does that mean that the person who sins were wiped out when they became a Christian and that alcoholism was gone? Does that mean that you get to go to heaven and the person who went to their grave hating that sin but still having it with them goes to hell? Absolutely, Absolutely not. Because our side of the covenant has been fulfilled. It was based on works, but it wasn't your works. And you hate that side of your life. And praise God, one day when he rips this flesh off of our souls, we're not gonna have to deal with it anymore. That is not the way the old covenant was. The Israelites are about to find out. Pardon me, that was a little fast. The Israelites were about to find out what it takes to become God's treasured possession. This list of 10 commandments and the 603 that are going to follow it are going to make up what is required to fulfill their end of the agreement. This for them is going to be a covenant of works, one that they would have no hope of ever fulfilling. And you're like, why would God ever do that? Why would he lay this, this rule, these rules out and say, hey, you can be my treasure possessions if you do this, but they would never be able to fulfill it because he wanted to reveal to them their sin. He, again, remember, God is revealing to humanity, him, to him, uh, humanity Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) God is revealing himself to us. And so he needs us to know, hey, we are sinful people and there's nothing that we can do. We're so marred by our sin. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way into his presence. And so the covenant and these laws and these rules, the main thing they were meant to do was to show us how unworthy we were and to point us to the cross, to the need for a savior. And that is exactly how God has designed this. This is what was going to, it was going to take for anybody who wanted to become God's treasured possession. They were going to need a savior. In Acts 13, 32, we read, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. He is the son of God and we are co-heirs. We are now children of God, co-heirs with Christ because of the inheritance he earned for us. Which brings us to the first commandment. Now I'm gonna expand on some of these commandments, but we just, we simply do not have time. We probably could do 10 weeks on these 10 commandments. We just don't have time to go through all of them today. So I'm gonna buzz through some of them, spending time on some and not others. Anyway, the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. God requires our total commitment. Nothing has changed there, and he wants that today just as much as he did back then. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous jealous God." punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to the thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Idols, idols are these things that we put in the place that God should be in in our lives. We make them greater than God. In our day and age, that could be money. It could be power. It could be wealth. It could be beauty. 
more closer to home, even in this building. It could be a worship style. It could be a worship song. It could be a preacher. It could be a church program. During the pandemic, we saw churches very clearly turning their philosophies about how we should do things in a church into idolatry. Now that things have settled down, we don't hear anything about that. And I think that reveals a lot about what was going on in those churches at that time. Shouldn't our passion for the Lord outpace our passion for our philosophies and our preferences? Of course it is. That's exactly what this commandment is talking about. The moment anything takes the place of God or the the passion in our life is more for something else than it is for God, that thing has become an idol for us. And it can take the form of anything. That's why it's so tricky. The Israelites lived in a polytheistic culture. And what that meant was they had worshipped many gods. If you wanted to worship the, you know, get pregnant, you would worship the god of fertility. If you wanted better crops, you might worship the god of the rain or, or whatever. And they would go and they would worship this god in a temple or they would pick the, po- pick the, the doll, the, the, the idol, the handcrafted idol out of their pocket and they would worship that. One commentary said this, the idol partook of the very essence of the divinity it was designed to represent. So if you went down to the corner store and you bought yourself an $8 handcrafted idol of some God and you put that in your pocket, you were essentially carrying around a piece of the spirit of that God. You were connected to that God's spirit. Can you see why God would have a problem with that? Because one day God was going to bring his Holy Spirit and he was going to let it uh, come into our hearts. But it wasn't going to come at the cost of an $8 idol at the corner store. The price for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives was going to be significantly more than that. And God doesn't want there to be any confusion that to have a relationship with God and to have God with us is something so much more significant than having a little wooden idol stuck in your pocket. Let's keep reading verse seven or uh, yeah, verse seven, commandment number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. God's name is to be revered. No one is to swear by God's name because if you swear by God's name and then you go and you mess up, then it makes God look bad. We are to be a people who are, whose yes means yes and whose no means no. Essentially, we are to be truth tellers as God's people. God is going to, through this people and through uh, eventually in the New Testament, his uh, other apostles, he is going to be giving the truth through the word of God to people. And so it makes sense that he would want his people to be known as truth tellers. If you're going to give the truth to people, you want the people who believe that truth to speak it. And so God wants, and what he's saying here, don't misuse my name. Be tellers of the truth because the truth is going to be revealed to the world through you. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. This particular commandment has been made into many things and it has been an incubator for legalism. Uh, and I don't remember if this was shared in this room, so I apologize if it ends up being repetition. But uh, 
the, the Jewish people had a book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a collection of oral Jewish teachings. And there's a bunch of rules in there that kind of add to this commandment. And in that book, it says, nobody is allowed to kindle a flame on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to start a fire. You're not allowed to put a fire out. So if you want, you know, to have lights going in your house back then, uh, a torch burning, you had to have that thing filled with oil burning the day before because otherwise you were going to be in the dark. If you wanted to cook food, that fire had to be going and roaring and everything else because otherwise you weren't going to eat. This got even more ridiculous when... Um, electricity came on the scene because now they had like this light bulb that would turn on. It's like, well, that's kind of like a flame. So, so that what do we do with that? And so then they made up another rule that said, well, you can't flick a light switch on Jewish people today who are, who are, you know, uh, still, you know, following this to the letter of the law will not flick a light switch on on the Sabbath day because it messes with the holiness of that day according to this tradition that's been handed down. And they won't turn on their stove either. They got to cook all the food the day before and, and like keep it warm. I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't know how it works, but anyway, they're not allowed to use electricity. But that comes out of this rule that was created there. When I was 10 years old, I went over to my grandma's place on Sunday and I was like, and they lived out on an acreage. And I was like, Grandma, can I ride? I was 10 years old, wanted to ride the lawn tractor. Grandma, can I ride the lawn tractor? And she's like, no, it's Sunday. It's the Sabbath day. You cannot ride the lawn tractor on the Sabbath day. And I'm like, Grandma, I'll just do it without the blade on then. Like, I just want to ride the lawn tractor. It's fun. Nope, it's the Sabbath day. We got to keep it holy. Here's the crazy part. Uh, my grandma's not Jewish. So I have no idea what she was talking about. Second thing um, is... Uh, uh, it was Sunday. The Sabbath is on Saturday. So it was like, Grandma, what? She putting all these rules around the Sabbath day and we're not even Jewish. So it was, it's crazy the rules that we put around the Sabbath day. And that's what's happened with this commandment, the legalism that has come out of it. At the heart of this commandment is for God's people to take rest and reflect on him. Stopping once a week for the Israelite people would be a regular reminder of the covenant that they were in with God. And it would hopefully allow them some time for prayer so that they would equate refreshing times with their soul and their body with spending time with God. Because isn't that what happens for us when we are with God? Isn't it refreshing? Doesn't it renew and rejuvenate our soul? That is at the heart of this commandment. And that is what we will experience on day seven, so to speak, at the end of time when we are standing with the Lord in heaven. Also, when Jesus walked the earth, he would do miracles on the Sabbath day sometimes. We see him healing people on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are walking around and they're going, you can't do that. But if Jesus fulfilled the law, then how was he able to do miracles on the Sabbath? Because at the heart of this commandment, like we said, is about restoring people to God. And if Jesus is healing somebody, God is with them right in front of them, healing them, restoring them, refreshing them. He wasn't breaking the commandment. He was making the day holy by honoring God and making miracles happen. Mark 2, 27 says, this, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The things that we do in the day are meant to make it a holy day not because of all the rules that we follow around it. So that's it for the first commandment. And as, we'll, as we've kind of seen, there is sort of this horizontal dimension to them. They are between us and God. But as we'll see with the next six commandments, they are more about us and our neighbors and the people around us. They're more uh, vertical, yeah, horizontal. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, here we go.
Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not uh, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife you shall not, uh, your, or his male or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That kind of sounds like more than one commandment. I feel like God was getting away with one there. But anyway, with these commandments, God is making them look like a nation that is set apart for him. He's saying, hey, here's what you should live like in the land with other people. But what we can see quite clearly here is, is that underlying all of this is something that Jesus talks about being the second greatest commandment. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the first the greatest commandment, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that is kind of reflected in the first four. But love your neighbor as yourself is like we see in this, in this last six. But if you follow those commands, it doesn't necessarily make you a great neighbor, nor does it make you love your neighbor. If you don't kill your neighbor, do you love them? No. It wasn't good enough. You can follow every one of these commandments and still be a terrible neighbor. There is something better that is needed, and that is why at God's initiative, in order to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him again, he sent Jesus. And now we have the Holy Spirit who writes his laws on our hearts and our minds, and he changes us from the inside out. So now it's not just good enough to follow the commandment, do not murder because Jesus says anybody who hates his neighbor is essentially the same as saying, I, you know, you're murdering them. God calls us to a higher standard in Jesus, but he does that from the inside out because we can't get there by following rules. Let's keep reading. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. You see here, they're getting it. We need a mediator. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance and Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. What an awe-inspiring picture we are left with here. As God is speaking over the people, the Ten Commandments, this incredible scene unfolds with smoke and lightning and earthquakes and, and thunder and smoke and, and, and trumpet blasts and all of this is unfolding. And it's more than the Israelites can bear to be in the presence of God. But this is what it would take to give them and to give us a clear picture of what it means to be in a covenant with the living God and the cost of becoming his treasured possession. I think it was, if we look back at these two chapters in Exodus and we, see, uh, we can see all that we have gained in the new covenant, how much harder it is in the old covenant. This is a covenant of works, but somebody hasn't fulfilled it for them. But we have that in the new covenant and we see how God has initiated all of this. And when we see that and we understand that, we fully grasp that, I think we should be in awe of what we have today. We should be in awe that we live in such a time as this where, where God has actually done the work for us, where we can still be a sinful people and yet somehow have the Holy Spirit of God within us and have the hope of the future in heaven with the Lord. What an amazing thing. We should be in awe of this. What a privilege we have to know him. Anyway, let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for what you have done for us and that we are a part of the new covenant in your blood, Jesus. What an amazing gift. And Lord, we wanna just acknowledge today, this is not from our doing. This is something that you have been working throughout history and we are the recipients of it, of uh, people who, who certainly are undeserving, but most certainly we want to be grateful. God, give us grateful hearts. Help us to see the amazing and the wonderful God that we serve. Help us to understand the power of the one that we have within us and help us to live our lives understanding day by day what you are capable of doing through us as we submit to you and turn our backs on the simple life that we came from. Praise you, God, for the covenant that we have today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.